Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you again, Father, that we have this opportunity to gather um, together with brothers and sisters to corporately bring our thanks, our praises, the expressions of our love. And now, Father, as we continue to worship you by giving careful attention to the proclamation of the word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would inhabit and indwell both the speaker and the hearer, that the words we hear don't just make us better educated Christians, but rather through the words that we hear, may we hear the message that you want our lives to emulate and we would be fed and grow and mature. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I saw an interesting news article this week. Uh, the caption read, Big Ugly Woman Wins Beauty Contest. Now, you know with a caption like that, I just had to look. So I, had to, I had to see what it was about. Um, I had to read the articles, and, and I kind of wanted to see the pictures, too. <laughs> I mean, it's not all that unusual in, in our modern woke culture that an unattractive woman would win a beauty contest because, you know, we want them to feel uh, valued for their, their character, their, their personality, and um, we actually disapprove of the idea that somebody is... Uh, judged better than someone else based strictly on their physical appearance. And so we disapprove of making judgments and comparisons, and as a consequence, we make a judgment and comparison, and we value the less attractive, physically winsome person over someone who has a beautiful character. And as shocking as it is, it's kind of refreshing to see someone actually admit that a big, ugly woman would win a beauty contest. Well, okay, so it turns out, I, I looked at the article, on August 18, 2006, a woman from Big Ugly, West Virginia, <laughs> won the Miss All World beauty pageant. Uh, even so, I saw the pictures and the headline wasn't entirely wrong. <laughs> I'm sure she has a really nice character. She's a great personality. <laughs> but be honest, okay? You are able to discern the difference between someone who's more physically attractive than someone else. At least, you know, people in the past, up until the last 20 years, were able to make a distinction like that, which is why we had beauty contests. So today, we're beginning the book of Esther, and the story begins with a beauty pageant to find the one who's most physically attractive in the Persian Empire. So when we, we learn about Esther, we are told practically nothing about her personalities, her morals, her godliness, her intelligence. We don't know if she could play the accordion, if she could find USA on the map. Remember that? Remember 2007, the Miss Teen America, Miss, uh, I think it was Miss South Carolina, wasn't it? I think it was Miss South Carolina that the moderator said, why do you think that, that most Americans today, one out of five, can find the United States on a world map? And then she goes, and I personally believe that people in South Africa and such, in Iraq, and remember that? Okay, thank you, one person remembers it, the one from South Carolina. At any rate, we, we, know, we know almost nothing about Esther except in chapter 2, verse 7. We have one description of Esther, and that is the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. I'm not making judgments. That's God's word, not mine. So today, we're going to begin the book of Esther. I'd invite you to turn to Esther chapter 1, verse 1. If you have the ESV study Bible, it's on page 680. If you have the... NIV study Bible, it's on page 720. If you don't have that, it's the Bible goes Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm. So the easiest way to find it is open your Bible in the middle and start turning to, to the left. You'll go past Job, that's easy to find. If you get to Nehemiah, you've gone too far. Right between Nehemiah and Job is the tiny book of Esther. Now, <clears throat> the book of Esther, the, the events that we're going to be studying the next several months, take place during the time of Xerxes when he was king of Persia from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. Xerxes is probably the Greek transliteration of his Persian name, which would have been Kacher Asha. And in Hebrew, it takes the form of Ahasuerus, only in, if you were speaking in Hebrew, it would be pronounced 
Ahasuerus. So what we see is our Bible, Ahasuerus, is the equivalent of his name Xerxes. Xerxes is the son and successor of Darius, the first Histaspis. Remember, Darius is the guy who um, gave the Jews the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Uh, his name is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. This uh, Xerxes that we're looking at today is also mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. Remember when they were rebuilding the temple, the locals got really torqued at him, and so they started to complain to the king that he should create an edict disallowing them to build the temple. It was to this guy, Xerxes, that they are appealing to. So Xerxes ascends uh, the throne when he's 32 in the year 486 B.C. The events that we're looking at span a 10-year uh, uh, period between the third year of Xerxes' reign and the next uh, 10 years. So they, they be, these events begin in 483 B.C. Now, at the time that Xerxes was on the throne, uh, Persia was at war, had this long-standing war with Greece. His father, Darius, had famously been defeated by the Greeks. And so um, Xerxes decides he needs to punish the Greeks. He wants to continue the war that his father began. And so he has thrown this empire-wide feast, and our story begins with this great banquet, to consolidate his power among all of the realms, the, the nations that, that he, that he uh, rules over. So we learn that in this third year of Xerxes' reign, incidentally the exact same time that our book Esther began, um, Greece was uh, at war with Persia and Persia was having this great war council that lasts coincidentally 180 days. So they're, Xerxes is bringing in all of the military leaders, the governors, the uh, princes, the, the nobles, the official to his winter uh, headquarters in the, in the town of Susa to plan the Persians' second invasion of Greece. So Susa is the winter capital. There are actually four capitals in uh, Persia. Susa is the winter capital because it was quite pleasant there. It would have been uh, brutal to be there in the, the summertime. So Persia is massive at this time. It goes all the way from India, contiguously all, th all the way over through Turkey and down through Egypt. It's just a massive empire. Persia rules the, the known world except for a tiny little piece of, of Greece, which they're at war trying to take over. So he's trying to consolidate all these different ethnics, all these different nationalities to gather together to join in this military campaign that he's um, planning against Greece. Herodotus, the Greek historian, records that during this feast, during this, this uh, banquet that's recorded for us in Esther, Xerxes gives this uh, speech. He says, for this cause I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, Hellas is Greece, and that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead and has not been granted to him to punish them. And I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest until I have taken and burnt Athens. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with good will. And whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. Um, so now Xerxes is throwing this, this show-off banquet, partly because it's a war council and partly because he wants to consolidate all of the different nations to join him in this war and partly because he wants to show them that he has the means to fight this war and to reward them for, for joining in on, uh, on this war. Um, like I said, Persia had four capital cities here in Susa, but also in Ectabana and Persepolis and Babylon. So there was four royal uh, capitals. They're here during the summer. Uh, Susa 
You remember is where Daniel had earlier had a vision. He, he's, he's at the, the canal at Susa. Susa is also where later Nehemiah would be the cupbearer to Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes I. So he, uh, that's the point of this, this great banquet. Now the curious thing about the book of Esther is we're going to discover is nowhere in the book of Esther is the name of God mentioned. Nowhere in the book of Esther is prayer mentioned or worshiped. So we wonder, you know, if, if God is not even named there, you know, what's the point of it? The point is, this is a brilliant literary device by the author of the book of Esther that although God is not named, we see God everywhere orchestrating all of the events, that God is providentially in control of all the events which appears as if they're random and that, that, that people are involved, that God is nowhere named, but he's everywhere present. And that was also, coincidentally, the theme that we looked at in Ruth, that God is providentially in control of all history, whether you see him there or not. Um, you, you see all these players, but it's the unseen powers that are truly at work. And, and that's still happening today. You know, we see all of the players of the world, but the, the, the providence of God is still acting in our lives. We see, as, 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 as uh, inhabitants of a fallen world, we see all of the strange, evil things happening, and we wonder, if God is good, why doesn't he do something about all these things that are happening? Where is God? Why doesn't he break in to these situations uh, more obviously so that we would see him. I mean, perhaps he's working behind the scene and we don't notice it, but where is God in all of this? And we need to understand that God is at work always behind the scenes, even when we're not aware of it. And that's what the writer of the book of Esther is trying to tell us in a very clever way, that it isn't always obvious to us that God is at work, that God is there, but he is. And God is ruling. God is overruling. God is controlling all of the circumstances of life. In his commentary of the book of Esther, Gordon McConville wrote, the story can become, therefore, a powerful statement about the reality of, of God in a world from which he appears to be absent. This is a great book for us to study to learn about the providence of God. That's a word that's kind of um, unfamiliar to Christians in America today, the providence of God. But it's a word that uh, prior generations of Christians, at least evangelical Christians, would have been very familiar with. It would have been common to their vocabulary. So when we talk about the providence of God, we are saying that, that God rules and he overrules in the circumstances of our lives for the good of his people, for, for, the, for the good of the church, to, to bring glory to his name. And it is understanding that God is providentially in control that brings sanity to the Christian, in that, that we look at all the wildness of the world and then we are comforted to know that God is providentially in control, that God works out his purposes in, in all of this mess and he, he saves his people and that no power on earth can hinder God's determined purposes in the world. And so despite um, what we see, we confess that, that, that God is manipulating, controlling, overruling the powers of men because of his own purposes. Now, the book of Esther is often thought of as just simply being a de description of why there is this Jewish feast of Purim, the feast of deliverance. But although the book of Esther is read every year among the Jews when it comes to the feast of Purim, it's not principally about how that feast got started. It is principally and supremely a book about the providence of God. Esther 1.1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 providence, provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign he gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the noblemen and the governors of the pr provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these things were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavements of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, so here's this banquet. It's lasting six months or 180 days, but we're not, we're not to suppose that uh, the, the attendants were always there for six months solid. It's more like a, an, an open house when you're selling a house. You know, people are coming and going. They come, they take a look, and then they go back. So for 180 days, for six months, there's this huge banquet um, to impress all of his people, all of his leaders, the governors of the provinces, the different military um, commanders, to show them that he has the means to fight this war and the means to, to uh, reward them for joining in. At the conclusion of this six months of war council, there is an additional feast which is meant to be the fireworks at the end of the event. You know, this is the, the grand event, the grand finale. And, and included in this last one week are all of the workers in the citadel. Notice not all of the people of the city of Susa, all of the people in the citadel, so the, like the castle, you might say. So all of the workers, these are the ones that have been putting on this lavish party for the last six months. They're also included as a matter of, of reward. Um, again, the description of this, this banquet focuses on its sheer opulence that the king could lavish so much. And we get to uh, verse 6 and 7, all of this in accordance with the king's liberality. They served with different gold goblets so that no two were alike. That's how rich he was. He doesn't have to have duplicates. He's got unique one-off pieces of artistry. And he's trying again to impress the people of his empire to, uh, to recognize his power and to be willing to join him in the battle. Now, this kind of wealth was real common in those days among the superpowers. At this time, only Persia and Greece are the world superpowers. But the fact that he had so much money to just throw away doesn't even begin to fathom how rich he was. A century later, when Alexander the Great enters into Susa, and he uncovers the royal treasury, he finds 40,000 talents of silver and gold bullion. He finds 1,200 talents of minted gold coins. That's 270 tons of minted gold coins. Just the coins were worth $18 billion. That's the kind of money, even, even uh, Alexander the Great was, was impressed with the wealth these Persian kings had accumulated. Not to be, we don't have to talk about it, but notice also verse 9, that while the men are having this lavish party to be impressed by the king, Vashti, the, uh, the king's queen, his, his wife, is also throwing a party in the palace. The king's out in the field, in the court, the, the grass area. Vashti's having her party for the ladies, out in the palace. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistra, Harbona, Bigtha, Agav. You got to remember this would be on the test. <laughs> Zether, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged. His anger burned within him. Okay, so there's this, the grand finale is this last week of banquet. And the finale of the finale is that the queen should appear in all her royal regalia. That, that uh, she would come out and really impress everybody by her regalness. Now notice the text here says that the, the king was merry but it does not say that he was drunk. So Christians 
and Old Testament saints are allowed to be merry, they're just not permitted to be drunk. Let's, let's not read too much into the text. You know, some people say the king ordered the queen to appear in her golden crown, and he was plowed, and it was going to be some kind of a, of a burlesque show where she was wearing the crown and nothing else. That's not what the text says. Uh, the text says the king was merry with wine, and he gives the order. He sends an official uh, group. He sends this uh, entourage, the seven eunuchs, which are named here, to go and bring this official, well, it's more than an invitation. It is a command that the queen should appear at the finale wearing her regal gown. Now, again, remember, the point of this is to impress people with the king's glory. It's not to dazzle the soldiers with some burlesque show with a naked queen. That's not what's happening here. He wants her to impress them with her glory so that it will be a reflection of his glory. He wants to impress them with, with dignity, you know, not with some, uh, uh, I don't know what else to say, not just to entertain the troops. So the, the, king's, the king, of course, is not, he's not asking her to come. It's, a, it's an official summons. She doesn't have a choice whether she shows up, but neither is he demanding that she uh, appears in some uh, compromising way that would demean her. Again, this is not a request. This is an official order from the throne. And these seven powerful men, um, men within the government who, who, who are close to the king, is these seven eunuchs come with this official command, the queen is to appear, um, at, the, at the end of this uh, great banquet. Now, it's important to realize that Vashti is not a country bumpkin. She's not some common girl that happened to win the Miss, Miss Persia contest, and that's why she's the king. No, she, Vashti is the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar, and as such, she would have, except for being a woman, she would have the right to consider herself to be the legitimate heir to the throne. Probably more than Xerxes had that right. But for whatever reason, Vashti simply rejects Xerxes' order and the eunuchs return empty-handed. This would have been supremely embarrassing to the king. His, he's been snubbed by his wife and he's wondering, oh my gosh, what are all of my digni dignified guests thinking now? There's a guy who can't control his own wife. How are you going to control an empire? Here's a guy who's, who uh, um, his wife simply chooses to disobey him, or the, a subject of the king chooses to disobey him. Why shouldn't all of us choose to disobey him? Here's a guy who can't rule over his family. How's he going to rule over an army? So you can imagine... You know, he's expecting this grand finale that the queen comes out in all of his, her glory to be a reflection of his glory. And she says, I'm not showing up. And he's supremely uh, embarrassed. He's humiliated and he's furious. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Sether, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Mersina and Memekin, the seven princes. Notice these are not the same guys we just mentioned. These are not the seven eunuchs. These are the seven princes um, uh, of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Uh, again, this would be the only people in the kingdom who could approach the king without an invitation. They could just come into his presence. So this is how high they are in the, the echelons of, gov of government. And he says, according to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the providences of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before them, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard 
of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal go order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti, notice she's not Queen Vashti here. Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is, a better, who is better than she. So when the decree uh, made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands in high, high and low alike. The advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, and every province in its own script, and had every people in its own language, and every man be master of his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. So Xerxes can't afford to let this snubbing, this official snubbing of Vashti, um, go unpunished. He's afraid of a feminist uprising. Isn't that pretty obvious here? Yeah. If, if the queen can say no to the king, then all of the women will say no to their husbands. They're, they're very much afraid of a, this feminist uprising. And so and, and by irrevocable decree, rather than uh, marriage counseling, Vashti's, Vashti's fate is, is declared. And he'll, he'll make this formalized, permanent decree that, that, that uh, Vashti uh, will be subject to. So it's, it's kind of fitting. You know, Vashti had refused to come into the king's presence. The punishment will be she will no longer be one who's allowed into the king's presence. It doesn't say she's sent away. It doesn't say that she's beheaded. It just simply says she's not allowed into the king's presence anymore. She's stripped of her position, and she's stripped of the privilege of, of coming into his presence. Now, Memekin suggests that her position then be given to someone better than she. And then we suppose that he means by better someone who's more obedient. You know, he doesn't say that, but uh, that's, the, that's the inclination here. He leaves it up to the king to interpret what better might mean. But by an irrevocable law, um, she is to have this demotion. Uh, her fate is determined and sealed. Um, Vashti is assumed to have such influence over all the women of the land that they, when they hear of her disobedience, they will be disobedient. And so he's got to make the punishment more famous than the crime. So some people may have heard what she did, but everyone's going to hear what happens to those women who don't obey their husbands. And so as a result of her insolence, these harsh consequences follow. And women will all be intimidated into doing what their husbands require from the least to the greatest. Now, it's at this point in history, we've just ended chapter 1. This is really interesting. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's a four-year delay. Xerxes actually launches his military campaign against Greece during this between chapter 1 and chapter 2 for four, for four years. And incidentally, this campaign is a famous disaster. Did you ever see the the movie The 300, you know the story about the 300 Spartans who hold off the Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae. So it's, it's a true story. There's 300 Spartans, there's probably also 2,000 Greeks that, that held them off. But 5,000 Greek soldiers, including the 300 Spartans that were under the command of King Leonidas, they hold off 300,000 Persians as they're trying to get through. So it, and it's a suicide battle, if you've seen the, the movie or read the story. It's a suicide battle. But what it does is it allows the Greeks enough time to fall back and reposition themselves. And what follows then, because of this delay, this great famous uh, naval battle at the Salamis, the, the Persian fleet is, is destroyed. And the Persians go back with their tail between their legs. Now, four years later, when we come to chapter 2, verse 1, four years later, um, the, the, after this party of chapter 1, uh, we, we pick up the rest of the story. And so now we understand why there's this delay uh, in coming 
to find Vashti's replacement. So it's four years after this spectacularly failed uh, military defeat that uh, Ahasuerus is back in the capital. So Esther chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, when, at the Battle of Thermopylae, 2,000 Greeks lost their lives, 20,000 Persians lost their lives. So it, was, it should have been a slaughter, the Persians over the Greeks, but it was just the other way around. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Okay, so we, we learn that later on, this would be four years later, um, Ahasuerus comes back to his kingdom, and we're told that he remembers Vashti. This doesn't mean that he has um, the a recall of something that took place before. We're not talking about remembering as the fact that he has mental assent that something happened. This remembering has much more to do with the affection. So he's remembering, he's nostalgic, he, he has regret over what he has done to Vashti. Quite frankly, he misses her and he wishes things were different. He feels quite fondly still towards Vashti, but the command has been given in such a way that it cannot be revoked. Her situation, she is irretrievably lost. She, her, de, her demotion can't be overruled. And presumably, out of concern for the king's happiness, that the younger courtesans suggest to the king, I've got an idea. Let's have a beauty contest. And let's have all of the young women, all of the babes from all over the kingdom Let's have them brought to this royal palace, and they can be part of the king's harem. And whichever girl in the king's harem pleases the king the most, she will be the one that takes Vashti's place. Of course, this king thinks that's a good idea. He likes extravagant plans that feed his self-indulgence, and so he, the plan appeals to him. And characteristically as well, he likes plans that are superficial and short-sighted. And unlike every other Persian king, or practically any king of any time, you know, when kings marry, they marry someone to strengthen them politically or bond them with families. Notice, he doesn't do that. He's not interested in political or familial uh, significance. Uh, he's not interested in the girl's character. He's not interested in her intelligence. He's not interested if she can play the accordion or dance well. There's just three criteria here. They are youth, virginity, and physical beauty. So if you meet these criteria, you can be gathered to the royal harem, and then one lucky woman gets to be queen for the day, well, for all of the days that follow. Now, it's, it's reasonable to suppose that not every young woman who's gathered into the harem likes the idea. I mean, some young women, even though they're babelicious, they're gonna think, I'd rather stay with my family. I'd rather have a future where I could marry someone and raise my kids and be part of the community. So not everyone would have been willing to be part of this gathering into the harem. But on the other hand, some women would have. They would have seen this as winning the lottery. I mean, life was tough back then. Now, you were scrounging out a living, and it would have been, a, it would have been a, a very poor life. Now, if you got invited to be part of the harem, you have just landed in the lap of luxury. Uh, this would have been a life of, of ease and privilege. And so, as a consequence, uh, some young girls would have been delighted with the prospect. Um, the word went forth that uh, many young girls were to be brought into the harem of Xerxes' court. Of course, the herding up of women 
is offensive to our culture and to our minds because we see this as being supremely sexist activity and it should have been condemned by the author of, of, of Esther. You know, why doesn't he say something? Why doesn't he show some disapproval? Um, but the author is not editorializing. He's simply describing what is, what is taking place, that these women are being brought in. Now, it is not a sexist activity. And here's why I say that. Herodotus reports that as many as 500 young boys every year were rounded up and castrated so that they could serve as eunuchs in the court. I would venture that the women got the better deal of the, of the two. So it is brutal. It is a demonstration of absolute power that if you're the king and you have absolute authority, you can do whatever you want. But it's not sexist. It's that everyone is subject to this absolute power. And male or female, you are at the disposal of the king's whims. Uh, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> uh, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who was carried away from Jerusalem among the cap captives, carried away with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither female, nor, neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. And we don't have outside of the book of Esther, we don't have any um, reference to the names of Vashti or Esther. But interestingly, we do have extra biblical evidence of the name of Mordecai. A uh, tablet was discovered in 1904 in Persepolis, another one of the royal cities. And it contains the name of Marduka, who is a Persian official during this time of the book of Esther, these early years of Xerxes' reign. So we have this uh, outside uh, correspondence to uh, Mordecai's name. Now Esther here is introduced as Mordecai's cousin. Um, she's brought up by him because she's an orphan. Uh, she's known by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which simply means myrtle, the kind of uh, wood. Uh, Esther may be a Persian word for star, or it might be the Hebrew translation of Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and war. But again, of note to us here is that nothing is said about her except she was Babelicious. She had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. That's all we know about Esther. Now, the reason I say that is later we're going to find out that she advances, she finds favor with everyone who saw her. If it doesn't say that she found favor with everyone who knew her, you know, that's an assumption that we make. All that we know is that she's strikingly beautiful. She gains favorable response primarily because she is nice to look at. She's, um, she, her appearance you know, more than her character. And the reason that that's significant is because nothing is said about her as far as her morals, her character, her godliness. But remember, when we were in Ruth, the whole point was it doesn't matter what she looks like. We, the Bible is, is intent to show us that she, Ruth, is a person of character, that she is a person of stellar morals. So that, that's what we're meant to admire about Ruth, but that is what is completely absent about, about Esther. Uh, the Lord towards Samuel when Samuel was looking at the king and he sees Saul and he thinks surely the Lord must have chosen Saul because he stands head and shoulders above everyone else. And the Lord says don't look upon him and admire his height or his stature because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at his heart. You would think in a Jewish book, which Esther is, there'd be a lot more that describes Esther's character than her appearance. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided for her with cosmetics and her portion of food and seven chosen young women to serve from the king's palace. These are servants to, to Esther. And he advanced her and her women to the best place 
in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, there's been a lot of attempts throughout history to uh, judge the character of both Mordecai and Esther, both favorably and unfavorably. Some of them condemn their behavior as being cowardly or immoral, and some of them will defend them as being you know, the examples of great morality and character. But the interesting thing here is that the Bible is silent. And where the Bible is silent, we should be silent. The Bible has not chosen to reveal to us anything more about her character. And while it's, while it's natural for us to pass judgment on these two, whether it's positive or negative, the point is it doesn't matter because that's not the point. We're not to get distracted on the morality of the one or the other because regardless of their character or their motives, their fidelity to God's laws, regardless of whether their decisions were good decisions or bad decisions, the point is that every action they make in some inscrutable way serves to fulfill God's covenant promises to his people. It moves forward the whole story of redemption. Regardless of whether they always knew or did what was right, regardless of whether they chose to do wrong, God was still at work in their imperfect decisions, in their actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. I mean, other than Jesus, every character in the Bible, old and new, were flawed characters. They were sometimes confused, sometimes outright disobedient. And yet, our gracious God omnipotently works through their life for the purposes of his glory and the advancement of the salvation of the children that he loves. And God works through evil men. He works through powerful political structures that sometimes look like they're in charge more than God. You've often heard the saying that God works in mysterious ways. Well, this book of Esther is an example of how God is working in mysterious ways. And you look at our world, and, and you'd have to confess, our world, like their world, is controlled by the powerful, by the wealthy, by military might, by the political process. And just like the Jews of the Persian periods, we see powerful men, in this case the king of the world, do whatever they want to, and, and unchallenged by anyone. Today, dictators and tyrants, they... They, uh, they live a life of opulent luxury while the people under them live in poverty and squalor. And military leaders exert themselves over the helpless, giving credence to the saying that might makes right. And political machinery is constantly at work covering up scandals and making unethical deeds and disguising their ulterior agendas. And heartless business executives line their own pockets well, the people that they're supposedly helping grow poor. They grow rich at the expense of those who can least afford it. Meanwhile, people look on helplessly and they wonder, where is God in all this? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God intervene in this? And they wonder if, if uh, the world really is controlled by the, the rulers of the world, by the powerful, the mighty, it's, it's not unnatural to think that way. Imagine yourself as a Jew in Susa, and you're wondering, here's the most powerful man in the world. He does whatever he wants to, and even God can't overrule. And while you might not say that, even those who believe that God is in control and we continue to, to, to trust in him, don't you secretly doubt whether it really makes any difference, whether religion really has any worldwide influence? Don't you doubt when these powerful men and governments rule that God really is at work manipulating all this? Doesn't it rather seem like he's totally not part of it? 
and that the world really is ruled by people. And there's this temptation for us to give up on our belief that there is an invisible kingdom that was inaugurated by Jesus Christ and will find its fulfillment when he comes back again in great power and authority and suddenness. And we say, yeah, that's all nice, but that's not what I see happening right now. Where we see that here in America we live in this luxurious opulence like the Persian kings. We put our trust in our wealth. We don't need to pray. We don't need to ask God for anything because we have money and we have stuff and we have security. We don't need God. And we put our confidence in the things of man and not in God. And we see corruption in, in, in business and we see corruption in politics and we resign ourselves to the conclusion that, that man is ultimately in charge and that we are ultimately in the grip of the powers that will be. And it's all too easy for us to just fall in line with our ideologies and allow ourselves to be shaped by the, the claims and the promises. You see, the author of Esther is challenging us to see the world instead of through our natural eyes, through eyes of faith, and to understand that all of these imperial ideologies, military powers, political reigns, they are all subject to the, the power of God who is working behind the scenes in all of that, in all that time and, and, and action. And that we as Christians learn to trust in Jesus and his life and his resurrection, his, to know that God is always at work positioning things, even if we can't see it, and that God is orchestrating things for a greater purpose, even when for us so often our crosses must come before our crowns. There's a, a famous Rembrandt painting it was painted in 1642 called The Night Watch, and it hangs in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. It's a huge painting. It's 16 feet across and 13 feet tall, and it's at the top of the museum, the top floor of the museum. And when you go up there, you, uh, the whole thing is focused on this Rembrandt painting at the end of the hall. There's a long hall, and then that's kind of the... the, uh, the uh, great event at the end of the hall. And a lot of people go up there to, uh, Suzette, I see you smiling. Have you been there? You what? Okay. So at, at any rate, the painting is enormous. And it's, it, Rembrandt was famous for his, his uh, shadows and light. So there's, it's a painting of these guys getting ready for war. One of the guys has got the, the banner of his particular group. For some reason, there's this little girl in, in the light, and she's in a fancy dress, and she's got a dead chicken hanging from her waist. Other than that, the rest of the picture makes sense to me. But it's, it's, uh, it's one of his most famous, it probably is the most famous picture that Rembrandt ever made. Now, imagine, imagine yourself going to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and you walk down the hall, and you're standing admiring this, this famous Rembrandt painting. And in front of you, there's a student, a young student, and an older teacher that are admiring the picture together. And the teacher says to the student, do you see Rembrandt in the picture? So the student looks. He's looking for a signature in the corner. There's no signature. It's unsigned. And Rembrandt was also famous for painting his own face in the picture. So he's looking at all of the different faces in the picture. And there's like, I don't know, there might be 20 or so people in this picture. So he's looking at all these different faces, and he doesn't see Rembrandt in any of these faces. And he concludes that he's, he says, I've looked everywhere on this painting, and I don't see him. So consequently, I conclude he's nowhere. He's nowhere to be found. Now you hear the instructor whispering to the student, you looked for the signature, but you didn't find it. I see the subtlety of the artistic style. You looked at all of their faces, but I look at the character of their brushstrokes. And that's why 
you look at the painting and conclude that the artist is nowhere, and I look at the painting and see the artist everywhere. It'd be so easy for us to conclude when we look at the painting of life to conclude God is not there. God is nowhere in this, in this world today or in our own lives or in, or in the political things that are taking place or the wars taking place and we conclude God is not there because whatever it is that we're looking for is not seen. In the absence of the obvious, the narrator of the book of Esther, like this master teacher, stands next to us and asks, where's God in the world today? And you might be, you might be tempted to conclude that God is nowhere, and he's, the, the author of the book of Esther is now whispering to you quietly, saying, look again, this time with eyes of faith, and you'll see that God is everywhere. That's the message that we're going to examine as, we, as the book of Esther unfolds. So let's pray and we'll pick this up again, God willing, next week. Teach us, Father, to see the events of this world through eyes of faith and know that no matter what happens, that you are ultimately in control and this world is moving irresistibly to the conclusion that you have already determined when your son comes again and inaugurates his kingdom among men. Help us not to forget that so that we get distracted and alarmed and terrorized by wars and rumors of wars, by political intrigue and by the power of wealthy men and armies to realize that they are nothing. They are not controlling history, but you are. Help us to trust you and ultimately to look for you with unwavering faith. God, we pray that you would do this for us in the name of your son, Jesus, who alone deserves to be praised and worshiped. For we ask it in his name. Amen.